Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. Hello and welcome back to uh, this episode of Bone Up. We're now into the second series. Richie, things are rolling on. Um, have you been busy since we last spoke? Oh, incredibly busy. It's the start of term at college and everything's kicking off. And we were lucky enough to have a visit to Diamond to go and run some experiments in our bone samples. So we could do a study of how aging, and loss of bone mineral density with age contribute to fractures. Yeah, I saw some of that on Twitter and, and some of the quite exciting photographs that you, you put up. And I think you looked more like an electrician at some times rather than a, a, bone, a bone researcher. But it certainly looked exciting. You were using sort of x-rays to examine the, the quality of the bone. Is that, is that a good way to describe it? Or Yeah, we went to a particle accelerator in the Oxfordshire countryside called the Diamond Light Source. Took some bone samples we'd collected from an age range of donors from about 40 years old to 90 years old. Diamond is amazing. It's this giant donut out in the Oxfordshire countryside. It accelerates electrons up to light speed. As an experiment, you can go and you can sit in a hutch underground for days at a time without daylight. And you can control the electron beam and use it to create very high energy x-rays. You can use those x-rays to study materials. And what we do is we take samples of bone, we put them in a loading rig and apply a tension load to them, and we pass x-rays through them. And with those x-rays, we can study how the nanostructure and the molecular structure of bone behaves under load. Just to put that in context for the listeners at home, how small nano is. Imagine taking an object the size of the sun and shrinking it down to the size of the football and then shrinking it down by the same amount again. That will get you down to about the size of a glucose molecule, which is one nanometer. And this is why we need the particle accelerator, because the structures that we're looking at are so tiny. This is the only facility in the world that we can use. And what we're going to do is we're going to test the hypothesis that as people get older, and they lose bone mineral density, the calcium in their bones uh, loses its stickiness and it doesn't glue as well to the proteins in your bone. And I think basically what happens is that as we get older, the, the mineral doesn't bind as well to the proteins in your bone and they break apart too easily, maybe during a fall. And that's what causes a bone to fracture. And I think this could be one of the reasons that explains why so many people who suffer a fragility fracture don't actually have osteoporosis. They might only have osteopenia or, or normal bone density. It's because it's because aging affects not just the mineral in bone, which is measured in a DEXA scan, but also affects the collagen. And if the collagen and the mineral are both degrading with age, then can become very fragile. You're almost talking yourself into being a guest on your own podcast, Richie, to talk about this research. I think that would be an idea for later in the series. And it, I mean, I must say that's, that's very relevant. We've often talked about this. It's easy for me if I see someone who has broken a bone and we do a DEXA scan and we see that they have low bone mineral density, they have very little bone, that's easy to treat and easy to explain. The much more challenging cases are those who actually appear to have quite a lot of bone, but yet who are still fracturing and who still seem to have in some ways very similar fractures, because most of the medicine I have is simply designed to increase the amount of bone that you have. 
and doesn't directly influence in any way that I can measure, doesn't directly influence the quality of the bone. And actually, this brings us right back to our very first episode. Do you remember when we talked about this? And um, we talked about not just how much bone you have, but the quality of the bone and how sometimes, well, sorry, why usually a football team with 11 players will beat a team with nine players. Sometimes, as you know, a team with nine players is the one that wins because the quality of the players is, is, is better. Um, and that's something which I think is fascinating work. I've, I, we're definitely going to have you on talking about this as a guest in the series. Um, but it's something I would love to see at a clinic where I can not just measure the patient's bone density, but I can somehow measure their bone quality, their bone elasticity, perhaps their bone age might be a good way of describing it. Uh, obviously, I can't put my patient inside your your diamond light um, uh, source, but uh, your next project then should be to translate that into the clinic and something that I can use. Yeah, it would be wonderful to do that. I think a, a, a collagen measure to go with a mineral measure could be a really good way of improving diagnosis of fragility and prediction of fracture risk. And I'll give you a good example that's that's related to diet. As you will know, uh, a patient who has diabetes is more likely to fracture for a given bone mineral density than a patient who doesn't have diabetes. I think the reason why is that the sugar in the blood gets into the bone and reacts with the collagen and it makes the collagen stiffer. And I think that's why people with diabetes are more likely to fracture than somebody who doesn't have diabetes. So it could be that it's really important to interrogate, you know, the importance of collagen in bone above and beyond mineral, because it might lead us to whole new ways of understanding how our environment and our lifestyle, and what we eat, affects the health of our bones and helps us to understand how we might be able to prevent fractures by taking positive action in our daily lives. Just something like eating better and consuming less sugar and avoiding comorbidities like diabetes will be really good for your bone. And I think we might be able to unlock some of those important secrets. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating. It's also very relevant because while you were, while you were uh, working at that, I was, while I was seeing patients at the clinic, I was also attending some meetings and conferences. And one of the conferences I was at was the European Geriatric Medicine meeting in London, I'm not a geriatrician, I'm a rheumatologist, but you know, we're all friends together when we're talking about osteoporosis and bone health. And while I was there, I was asked to, to chair a symposium uh, with a, a scientist from Melbourne in Australia called Dr. Sandra Giuliano. And Sandra produced some, some fascinating work really on that area, on lifestyle and diet and how it can impact on, on bone health and fracture risk. And um, Sandra picked up on a group of patients who were particularly vulnerable to fracture. And those were patients living in nursing homes or residential homes in, in the longer term. Um, she noticed that their calcium intake and their protein intake was quite poor. And she sought to see how she could address that, not with artificial supplements, but just with food and indeed with, with food in the terms of, of, of dairy produce. Um, and she increased the dairy intake of those patients and produced over just over just two years remarkable improvements um, in their their fracture risk. So the number of hip fractures reduced by almost fifty percent in the group of people in whom she improved their diet with more protein and more calcium. And not only that, but she managed to reduce the number of falls significantly in these people as well, which made me think of what we talked to Gustavo Duque about and the the fascinating um, uh, connection between bones and muscles, not just in terms of falls, but in all that crosstalk that went on between bones. And the longer I heard Sandra speaking and, and, and speaking to her afterwards, I thought, you know, she would be a really good guest on the podcast here. She's someone I thought our listeners would like to hear about. And in, fe and in fact, the, the study, the work came out and was finally published really right in the middle of the worst of the COVID pandemic. And I think it probably would have had more, more attention and more traction at other times. So, um, so 
I was delighted, spoke to Sandra, and I was delighted that she agreed to come and join us to talk a bit about uh, about her study. And isn't it interesting, Richie, at the complete other end of the spectrum, when you're working on the nanoscale with bones, and you're talking about how, how, how diet and lifestyle can actually impact upon quality of bone as well? I think that's important. If we do studies at the population level, epidemiological studies looking at associations between, say, diet and disease or fracture, or even if we do interventions where we test whether or not diet might be able to reduce falls and reduce hip fractures, you know, 50% is amazing. I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Juliano today. After those studies, we still have to do the mechanistic studies that show exactly how a change in diet, a change in nutrition will affect the physiology of the bone and affect the structure of the bone and the strength and the mechanics of the bone. Because it's only when you put all of that evidence together that you can really make a convincing argument that you have a cause and effect relationship. And you need that if you're going to be able to persuade people to invest, to put money into these ideas to improve the treatment and care of people. Teamwork, that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Absolutely. We were delighted that Sandra was able to join us and, uh, and uh, we'll now go and, uh, and hear what she has to say. I'm really excited to introduce our guest for today. We have Dr. Sandra Uliano. Sandra is a senior researcher at the University of Melbourne based at Austin Health. Dr. Uliano's research focuses on MSK healthcare across the whole lifespan. And today, what we want to talk about is your really recent and exciting work about the benefits of improved nutrition on falls and fracture risk in elderly people, especially people who are living in care homes. And I suppose, essentially, the way that you're testing the way people can improve bone health. Welcome. Thank you very much, Richie. It's lovely to see you, Sandra. Thank you for joining us across the time zones. You're welcome, David. It's evening for me. I'd maybe just kick off. I mean, we're quite excited uh, by this study you published in the British Medical Journal last year. And uh, we have a few things we want to sort of ask you about it because we think our listeners actually would be would be interested. You tested what you might call a new treatment for preventing fracture in high risk patients. And you managed to reduce hip fractures by almost 50%, but that wasn't an expensive drug or some exciting monoclonal antibody. You did it with, with, with food, with, with dairy produce. Could you sort of set out for our listeners what the study involved and what the main findings of it were? Yeah, look, David, what we did is we observed in residential aged care, which is the care homes, that the intake of protein and calcium foods was declining. So we know that their intake of foods that have calcium, i.e. the dairy foods, and also foods with protein, so the foods in the meat food group and the dairy food group were declining. And so you've got a group that are deficient in these two nutrients. So we went about looking at if we improve the intake of dairy foods in this group so that improve their protein and calcium intake, would it reduce falls and fractures? So this trial involves 60 aged care facilities or aged care homes across metropolitan Melbourne and regional Victoria. So what we try to do is get a really big variety of homes, so homes that were small medium and large, non-for-profit, for-profit, singly owned. So we really wanted a good cross-section of facilities. And of the 60 facilities, they were randomised. So we randomised by facility, not by person. So by facility, we randomised 30 of the facilities to improve the dairy content of their menu. And the other 30 facilities went about their usual menu as it stands um, you know, what they're providing. So for the intervention facilities, we had a, um, a dietitian that was really good with food service work directly with the food service team. So the importance here of the trial, it's not saying this is how you have to do it. It's about saying, how do you cook? 
what do your residents like to eat and how can we accommodate that by improving the dairy content? Now, by dairy, we need to be quite specific here. In Australia, dairy is milk, yogurt and cheese. So for those that love the ice cream, sorry, it's out. For those that love butter and cream, they're not included. Okay, so it's very specific. So we're looking at dairy, milk, yogurt, cheese, that's high in calcium and high in protein. So all we did, you know, it's not a miraculous trial. All we did was improve the dairy content of the menu. So we made sure that there were lots of opportunities throughout the entire menu. So we're looking breakfast, lunch, dinner, all the snacks in between, that there was the provision of dairy food, milk, yogurt, cheese, based on preferences of the residents and also what and how the chefs like to cook. So each chef have their own little flair and if they like to use cheese a lot, we incorporate more cheese into the menu. If the residents like yogurt, we incorporate more yogurt into the menu. So it was a very tailored intervention to the facilities and to the actual residents' preferences. So it wasn't a one-size-fits-all approach. It was very much, as you say, tailored to what the home would want and what the residents would want. Yeah, look, you know, I'd love to say here's the manual, take it away and use it. But the reality is it's not a manual. It's a repertoire of thousands of different ways of doing it. We actually found that even within a facility, you'll have one chef that likes to cook in a certain way and another that likes to cook in another way so we went to the extent of saying okay when this chef's on this is how we in, um, incorporate the dairy in and when this chef's on we incorporate it a different way so it was very very tailored and I think the success of the project was because we didn't say here's a manual off you go cook what we say cook what we want it was very much going you cook how you like to cook we'll support you and we'll cook relative to what the residents want to eat so tell us about the outcomes then because i think that's the really exciting thing you actually managed to reduce the number of fractures in 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 the care homes in which you had the intervention is that right yeah we did look so what we observed is that in the facilities or the aged care homes that receive the additional dairy food. So just to give you an idea, they went from two servings to three and a half servings. So we're still within recommended um, levels. We observed a 33% reduction in all fractures and a 46% reduction in hip fractures. So when you look at that number, you go, oh my God, this is massive. But what we observed is all but one of our fractures resulted from a fall. And we observed an 11% reduction in falls. So with the falls, we look at it and go, you know, 11%, not much, but two thirds of residents fall. And so over the period of time, we observed 23,000 falls. So an 11% reduction now becomes a quite significant number of falls that have been reduced. So that almost asks one of the other questions about why this might have been the case. So you were reducing falls, which you feel was at least partly a big contributor to the reduced number of fractures. Yeah, look, I think so. So there's two parts to it. One is that we know calcium has a very modest effect on bone remodeling. So it's not like the bisphosphonates. It's not like the medications. But those medications can only be used in people that have either osteoporosis or have had a prior fracture or have a risk factor. So we can't just give these drugs to everybody that is in a care home. So what we needed was an intervention that was safe but effective. So you can imagine across the entire care home, all we did was increase the dairy content of the of the menu so in a sense if you imagine the beautiful you know your usual bell-shaped curve so you've got the high risk people with osteoporosis at one end you've got the low risk people that have just amazing bones at the other end and you've got the bulk of people in the middle that are at moderate risk we shifted that entire bell curve to a lower level of risk so the majority of people are at moderate risk but they contribute the greatest number of fractures. So we just shifted that entire group 
to a lower level of risk. Wow, what an outcome for such a simple intervention, increasing the number of dairy portions from two to three and a half a day. Yeah, look, and as I said, it was very um, pragmatic. So that that was the probably why the project was successful. We were quite pragmatic. It wasn't us telling them what to do. It was us saying, how do you cook? What do your residents like to eat? How can we assist you to increase the dairy content? The trial was effective because they had low intakes of calcium and protein. If they were healthy people with really good calcium intakes and really good protein intakes, you probably wouldn't see a benefit. But as an entire group, on average, their intakes are below standards. So I know right now the listeners are going to want to know what level of intake should people have in order to maintain uh, healthy amounts of protein and calcium in their diets? Yeah, look, fantastic question. So the baseline intake in this particular group was 600 milligrams per day. And for in Australia, the, the requirement is 1300 milligrams. So in a sense, they were less than half. And what we achieved was an intake of 1100 milligrams, which equals the estimated average requirement. And for protein, their intake was well below one gram per kilogram body weight, and we got it up over one gram per kilogram body weight, so 1.1 gram. So what we've done is we've taken a group, as I mentioned, that were deficient in calcium, 600 milligrams a day, half are recommended, and protein intakes between 0.8 and 0.9 grams per um, kilogram body weight per day and got them up to recommended levels. So it wasn't an intervention that was force feeding or was specifically targeting people. It was a broad-based intervention that enabled all the residents to access the foods. What kind of portion size do these numbers represent? So very good question. So what you find in Australia and in the UK, in Northern Ireland, in lots of other areas of the world, the portion sizes are different. So just to keep it in perspective, the three and a half servings, one serving of milk equals 250 ml, one serving of yogurt equals 200 grams of yogurt, and one serving of cheese equals 40 grams of cheese. So in a sense for the listeners around the world, they need to take those numbers and convert them to what their recommended serving sizes are. I suppose a question that people ask me and that will occur again to the, to the listeners is, is there something special about the dairy produce or could you reproduce these figures simply by taking calcium tablets and vitamin D tablets and protein supplements and taking all these things separately? Yeah, look, really good question. So in, in relation to our participants, they were vitamin D replete. And that was critical because the previous work that looked at calcium and vitamin D supplementation that showed um, a fracture risk reduction, and that was like a Chapuis study that was in 1992. It's never been repeated, but they were calcium deficient and vitamin D deficient. So in this group, they were vitamin D replete. So it was mainly the calcium and the protein that was low, hence why we saw a benefit. You know, if they were sufficient, if they had really good, if they were eating three and a half servings of dairy and we gave them more, you're unlikely to see a benefit. The benefit was because as a whole group, their intake of calcium and protein was below recommended. The dairy intervention seems very cost effective. Should governments and healthcare providers be addressing diet in ageing and care home populations as a public health measure? Yeah, look, what we observed is this intervention cost 
less than one Australian dollar a day, which is equivalent to about 60 pence a day and about 0.7 euro a day. And I'm not sure of the American conversion. So it wasn't expensive. And when you look at the cost of fractures, so we've looked at the cost effectiveness in Australia because we know the cost of fractures in Australia. So what others need to do is go, okay, let's look at the cost of this intervention in my own country and what's the cost of fractures and is it cost effective? So we're saying it is, but you need to relate that data to, you know, Northern America, to Europe, etc. If it is, it's likely to be. It wasn't expensive at all. It seems such a strong argument for this. You'd almost think that the healthcare provider should be beating a path to your door, asking for that manual on how to do this that you said didn't exist. I mean, have you found interest from healthcare providers and governments or or is the door still shut? Look, I think the primary driver that I believe drives policy change is the economic benefits. So I think... Um, that once the um, the cost savings benefits will be evident, we're more likely to be able to change government policy, we're more likely to change providers' policies. And what they need to see is that when you provide an intervention such as this, it has a direct cost-saving benefit to themselves. And I think that's really critical because a provider has their costs And then when a person fractures, there is a a health system cost that's usually either a state government or, you know, provincial government or a federal government. Um, So we really need to partition out the costs because if I know I did it and it benefited me as a provider, I'm probably more likely to do it versus if the government sees, yes, it's beneficial, then they're more likely to create these standards Following on from that, isn't it strange you'll think that healthcare providers and governments are prepared to fund very expensive drugs and very expensive operations, and but may be more reluctant to fund something which is actually relatively cheap and relatively easily done? Yeah, look, with this evidence, the, the problem, when I say the problem, the issue was is that prior to this trial, we actually had no evidence. So prior to this trial, we had associations with fractures. We had, you know, we had interventions that demonstrated benefits to um, bone mineral density changes, etc. but we actually didn't have the hard outcome of fracture prevention. So in a sense, it's no one's fault that it hasn't been done previously because it was always just association, whereas this is the first time we've actually got clinical outcomes from a randomised controlled trial that says if you improve the food quality, in this case adding dairy, so calcium and protein, to a group that are deficient in those nutrients, you will get benefits. So if I could throw a spanner in the works... The world is facing many problems, including global warming. Dairy herds produce a lot of greenhouse gases. Would plant-based protein interventions reduce fractures as effectively as dairy? Yeah, look, that is the million-dollar question. The reality is, is that project has never been done. So we can't say that it will work. We can't say that it won't work. One of the key issues is there's something about when we look at dairy, um, we actually don't understand it. We actually don't understand this matrix that's in dairy. So if you think about what it is, it's a food that's designed to grow a being. So in the case, it's a calf. So there's this amazing combination of nutrients and aspects to it that we actually don't understand. And In a sense, we've never been able to reproduce that. So if we could probably reproduce that perfectly, um, who knows, maybe it could work, but we need to do that trial to have that evidence. If there's any funders listening, get in touch with Sandra. Yes, please. Um, Yes, yes. If there is any funders listening, it's um, it's an expensive trial. If you imagine we fed, um, we had 7,000 residents, so we fed three and a half thousand residents with the additional food for two years. 
So if you do your maths, you can work out how much this project cost. There may be people who run nursing homes listening to this or nurses who work in nursing homes or was there, did you get any kickback from the nursing homes? Were they positive about being involved in this? I mean, I've been involved in some research in nursing homes and I must say they, they were very positive about it. The residents were positive, but how did, what sort of feedback did you get from the, from the healthcare providers themselves? Yet relative to when we recruited, we had an astounding recruitment rate. So people were really open to something that can improve the quality of life in residents. The residents themselves were really keen to be involved. And I love it. Like the oldest resident we had was 100 and said to me, am I too old for your study? And I love that, that you've got these beautiful people that say, look, I want to give back to society. And by doing this project, I'm giving back to society. Um, You had some food service staff that were just fantastic and you know, would come up with ideas and and share ideas, and you had others that were reluctant. So I think if you imagine any any intervention, you're going to get some that take it on board and run with it. You'll get some that will be hesitant. Um, and same with the actual hands-on people. Some did it with passion and just loved the ideas and loved the fact that they could improve the, the um, quality of life of the residents and you had others that were just it's a job it's nine to five I do the bare minimum and you know I just survive this and I endure it um, but I, I believe that if they were aware of the benefits that they made that sense of ah whatever I make no difference may change they may realize that you know what you put on their plate makes a massive difference to their health and well-being. This is something, Richie, and I've talked about before, even with other guests, about how so much research excludes people. So if you have memory problems, you get excluded. If you're not mobile, you get excluded. If you have other illnesses, you get excluded. This is very inclusive research, isn't it? Everyone was involved in the nursing homes and whether you had dementia or whether you were chair bound, it, it didn't matter. And, and you know, therefore, it actually reflects the sort of people we see in real life rather than the very specific group sometimes who are included in other research projects. Yeah, look, David, that's 100% correct. So it included, and I think it's really important that we include people with cognitive impairment because in Australia, that makes up 50% of the population in residential aged care homes. So it's a really significant portion of people. And what we found, and the reason we used food is that those types of foods are familiar to these people. So if you put a glass of milk in front of them, they understand it's milk and they will drink it. If you put a piece of cheese in front of them, they recognise it's cheese and they eat it. So it's really important that when we put an intervention together, that it actually caters to the people that will benefit from the intervention. So it's just food that they knew and food that they recognised. It's really interesting. Uh, like you say, it's just food. On the face of it, it's very simple uh, just to give people milk, cheese, yogurt, etc. But actually, there's layers and layers of complexity that you thought about here, isn't there? Like the type of foods that people are comfortable with, whether or not they were in a nutritional deficit before the trial started. And can people who are suffering from cognitive decline, mobility decline, ill health, comorbidities, take part in and benefit from such a trial? It's really amazing. Yeah, look, my my mother had early onset dementia, as an example. And if you gave her, um, she was on texture modified food, which is really, if people have ever used it or fed someone with it, it's just blobs of colour that have no meaning. And yet if you put cheese in front of her on a cracker, she knew exactly what it was. And um, my background is Italian. And the first thing she would do is pick it up and offer it to you because that's what the nonnas do. But it was interesting when you use just food, they recognise what it is. 
it seems that you're really good at being able to recruit people into your trials and your studies. And we've been reading some really exciting work that you did with Antarctic expeditioners who more or less lived in the dark for 12 months. Can you tell us about the effect that sunlight deprivation had on their bone health? Yeah, look, this was a beautiful opportunity to look at, like, you know, if you look at an ideal project, you know, and we want to understand vitamin D, I can't take a group of healthy people and put them in a room for 10 months and see what happens to their bone. It's unethical. But what we had was these people that were going to Antarctica as part of their normal job. So people need to understand these are plumbers, electricians, scientists, communication people, chefs, like just ordinary people that are put into the circumstances of being out of sunlight for nine, 10 months of a year. So for me, it was like, you know, this is a, a like a, a, a lab. It was a realistic lab that we can go, so what happens when people go into sunlight deprivation, what is actually happening to their vitamin D? What is actually happening to their bone? So it was one of those beautiful opportunistic experiments that we could do that we actually did, but it's actually gone on to become, we've actually introduced a vitamin D supplementation policy. It's been used by other expeditioners and countries around the world. So this awesome opportunity has now actually fed back to the Antarctic community and has benefited the expeditioners as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the outcomes were that people actually lost bone mineral density at the hip while they were there. Is that right? Which is it's in an interesting contrast to your group in the nursing homes who you fed and they sort of improve their hip fracture risk and yet simply being in the dark for 10 months can reduce bone mineral density at the hip. Is, is, is that right? Yeah. So what we observed in this particular group, now remember, we've got to remember these are robust, healthy people. Okay. They need to be healthy and robust um, in order to go to Antarctica. You can't have any comorbidities, etc. And we observed that in this robust group of men and women, that there was a 1% reduction in bone mineral density at the femoral neck. Now, normally, if you took this group of people that are adults, we shouldn't see any changes in bone mineral density. So the circumstances of being deprived of sunlight, so therefore their vitamin D levels declined, was actually exacerbating bone loss. So we observed in this group that within four months of being in Antarctica, so sunlight deprived, they were vitamin D deficient. And presumably they were still physically active and you don't go to Antarctica to sort of sit about all day. They were physically active. They were well fed. It was the sunlight, lack of sunlight seemed to be the big factor here. Yeah, absolutely. It was simply that their vitamin D levels were declining. So as I mentioned, these are diesel mechanics, electricians, carpenters, plumbers, they're scientists. So they're all types of people. So it wasn't Um, that they weren't being active. Often, if people go to Antarctica, it's fantastic. So, you know, everyone gets recruited to go out and, you know, look at penguin colonies and all these types of things. So everyone has a second task that they do. So you might be a scientist, but you'll be in the kitchen cutting up vegetables. So what I'm getting at is that they are active and they've got opportunities to be active while they're down there. So it's simply just lack of sunlight. Sandra, I'm really drawn in by the stories that you tell through your work. And I hope the listeners at home are really enjoying this episode. How do you find such interesting angles? And do they help help you to reach out to people with your messages? Oh, look, I think I'm very passionate about um, changing the quality of life or having an impact on the quality of life of people in aged care and often I I, perhaps I'm sometimes a bit optimistic and I see the the potential in something rather than see the um the obstruction so with my research often for example with this particular trial in aged care it was 7,000 people it was 60 aged care facilities 
And I went, yeah, I can do it. Um, it's not until I look back that I think, wow, that was quite a big task. But I'm actually quite passionate about good food and just the value of good nutrition in the health of people, whether it be our Antarctic expeditioners, whether it be our beautiful older adults in aged care. I think we just need to um, understand the value of nutrition and how it can benefit people's health. And that's the really wonderful thing about your work. You have demonstrated the value of nutrition and even been able to quantify the amount of nutrition that people need. And that will allow everyone, including our listeners, to take positive action for their bone health. And that's a really amazing thing that you've done for the world. Thank you. Yeah. I think sometimes we forget good nutrition is the basis of all other health, isn't it? I'm not sure who was the who was the ancient you know um, philosopher that you know food is medicine I can't remember who it was I think David you know yeah supposed to have been Hippocrates the the original doctor from Kos in ancient Greece but uh, yeah apocryphally anyway he said that food is medicine yeah, but we don't understand food. We actually don't understand, you know, we take a tomato and the colour of it and all that stuff and then all of a sudden we realise there's properties to a tomato and we try to pull out the components that we think have a benefit and we try to put it into something, but sometimes it's actually the food itself that has the benefit. And so if we took out all the bits of dairy, I don't know if we could reproduce the same effect of the dairy as it is yeah there's this concept of food matrix isn't there where which seems particularly relevant to some food groups like dairy where they're more than the sum of their parts there's maybe something about how the components interact with one another and how they interact with the human human physiology which you don't get if you just separate them into the 10 15 20 different components but that's still quite a, a a vague area isn't it yeah, and you think, like, we, if you think of fermentation, right, they ferment dairy, so the yogurts and the cheeses, because it's it's a preservation so that the food will last longer. But in the process of doing that and souring milk and all those things, in the process of doing that, they've created other benefits. So it's not only just the food itself, it's actually how it's processed. Like, we know that the fermented dairy foods have amazing um, effects on the gut biome. And that's linked to everything else as well. So, you know, they've done a process for thousands of years so that they can preserve the food so they can have it when it's not available. And yet it's got these amazing benefits. So I I think food's amazing. It's so fascinating. And we probably don't give it enough credit. We better draw to a close there. We could talk about this all day. Uh, Sandra, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure speaking on your podcast and I hope the listeners got some benefit out of our discussion. Thank you very much, Sandra. It's great to speak to you again. You're welcome, David. David, what an exciting interview and what a wonderful guest. I really enjoyed talking to Sandra today. What were your key takeaways, do you think? Um, it, it was. It, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear about, about her work. Um, I have been involved and continue to be involved in some nutrition research. And I think one of the big takeaways for me about this was how real world it was, because there is some nutrition research and it's, it's just, let's say, on young, healthy males, giving them a difficult to take supplement. And while you may be able to produce some science and some statistics, you know that in the real world, it probably has very little relevance you couldn't have got a more inclusive group of of participants than those uh, in in Sandra's study. So you know it included people who were mobile, it included people who had dementia, it in, included people from all sorts of backgrounds and, and 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 so on. And it involved simply giving them food. And as she said quite clearly, it wasn't prescriptive. She wasn't giving everyone a, a strawberry yogurt every morning. It was simply involvement with 
with the, the care homes, with the chefs, encouraging people if they like cheese, well, then give them some more cheese. If they like yogurt, give them some more yogurt. So it was as real world and inclusive as it could be. And that clearly is the way forward for many types of research. We've talked about this before, how sometimes people in research don't reflect the real world. You couldn't get more a real world group of people. So that, for my mind, gets full marks for the research before you even start because it was so relevant to the sort of people I actually I actually see. It shows, I think, just how important nutrition is to health. And and I think Sandra probably heard me say before, you know, that that let food be thy medicine. Supposedly, uh, Hippocrates, you know, the father of, of medicine, said, but it is so true. Uh, there's a lot of talk about in this country, we call it pajama paralysis, where people come into hospital and don't exercise. People come into hospital and don't get, you know, don't get the same sort of food they had outside. We are very focused on drugs and on that sort of aspect of medicine. And yet we sometimes don't focus on people's food intake, people's exercise, people's lifestyle. And therefore to see this sort of research changing a lifestyle factor and not doing something dramatic just you know increasing their, their their portions of dairy produce what an amazing result in this high risk group of people nearly 50 percent reduction in hip fractures like clearly this wouldn't necessarily apply to everyone so you if you're a, a healthy mobile 75 year old you know walking three or four miles a day eating lots of protein eating lots of calcium as sandra herself said if you were to go and suddenly you know, double your, your your dairy intake, it may not have the same effect. But if you select a group of people who are poor in that respect and you correct it, then you get this, these amazing results. And, you know, she was talking about the price of this. If you compare the cost of increasing that amount of dairy produce in the diet, less than a pound a day, what did she say, 60 pence, 70 pence a day? If you compare that with the cost of fixing a hip fracture, for example, or even more importantly, people ending up needing more care, long-term care, nursing home care. It really, it's an argument that almost almost makes itself. Um, so many things to recommend this, this research and something I think which is very relevant. And I hope there will be people listening, maybe even who, who are managers of nursing homes, policy makers, uh, funders, they will be interested in this because while it's good for the patient, there are huge long-term savings here as well in terms of, of, of care of elderly people um, if we can prevent falls and fractures. So, I mean, you were sort of listening and, and, and asking questions intently as well. When she talked about living in the dark, I noticed you said you'd lived in that room under the, the, the Diamond Light Centre for several days in the dark. So I hope you take your vitamin D when you were, were doing that. Um, apart from that, what other takeaway messages did you have as a as a primary bone researcher? Well, I was really impressed by the work because it's an interventional study. As a basic scientist, I tend to follow up on things that have already happened and study how people aged or what happened to them when they took a particular drug. What I like about this interventional study is that the diet came up front and then you can follow on afterwards to see what effect that diet has. And that's really exciting. It's a really good way to demonstrate that quite a simple change in diet, you know, increasing what the, portion, the portions from two, two and a half to four a day had such a wonderful effect. Like you say, reducing hip fractures by 50%. You mentioned the cost there. I think it's about £20,000 to fix a hip fracture. Mm. And that's just the surgery and the initial hospital stay. Yeah. I think there's a report out just at the end of last year that said that osteoporosis costs the EU alone more than €50 billion Euros a year. Yeah. That, that, you know, it's one of these things we keep quoting these figures, 10, 15,000, maybe 20,000 to fix a hip fracture. That is simply to fix the fracture. That's not looking at the number of people going to long-term nursing care. It's not looking at the number of other family members who give up long-term work, for example, to care for mum or dad because they have a hip fracture. It's really hard to put a figure on how devastating a hip fracture is to the community in general. So yeah, if you can reduce hip fractures, 
the savings to, to, to the health service are, are enormous. Yeah. And like you say, everybody's going to benefit from preventing the fractures. The care homes are going to be able to provide better care for their patients and they're not going to have to deal with as many fractures. The hospitals are going to be better. The GPs are going to be better. You know, for the UK purse, and that's important, especially in today's current economic climate, mm-hmm. everybody's going to do better. And to think that something so cheap and simple can work. My other takeaway from this interventional study is how carefully targeted it was. Sandra found a group of patients who were not eating well enough and worked out how much they needed to eat and then just improved improved that intake. And that's really clever. You were talking earlier on, and I completely agree with you about how many studies of drugs or other interventions are really based on uh, quite a narrow section of the patients. They, you know, if you're studying osteoporosis, you exclude everybody with diabetes and you exclude everybody with heart disease, even though at the beginning of this podcast, we were talking about how diabetes itself contributes to the risk. And obviously this study didn't do that. And instead it kind of flipped that problem in, on its head and it targeted the people who needed the improvement in diet, irrespective of the other risk factors. And I think that's really clever. I love that. I want to be the kind of scientist who has those insights, who sees those methods, who sees the way to plan a study to make it work, to really test your hypothesis in this case, will improving the uh, amount of food intake around protein and calcium reduce the number of hip fractures and falls. Like, I, I love that. It's, it's so clever. It's so insightful. And, you know, it can take literally years to formulate a really good hypothesis as you chase a piece of research down. And I, and I wonder how much of the background, how long Sandra is working on this in order to be able to develop such a wonderful and insightful and clever study. And one that can have direct, direct improvements and impacts on people's lives. Care homes around the world, hospitals around the world, people around the world should be looking at their diet and thinking, okay, am I, am I eating enough protein? Am I eating enough calcium? And if I'm not, let's do something about it. And that's amazing. To have a study that can have that kind of impact is absolutely wonderful. Just amazing, amazing science from start to finish. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was published in the British Medical Journal, Big Impact Journal, as we said, I was almost sorry for her that it came out in the middle of of the COVID pandemic when probably people's focus was was elsewhere. And if we can do anything through, through this podcast just to sort of highlight that important work again, then that's a, that's a good thing. So listeners, you have a job there. If you have an elderly relative, especially a relative in a care home, go and take a copy of this podcast, show them the link show the people in the care home. Usually change, I feel, comes from the bottom up when people want it. So go and and tell people about what you've heard today. Tell people about Sandra's wonderful work and the wonderful impact, the wonderful impact that Sandra had. That's great. So I think about that, that about wraps things up for today. From Hippocrates telling us to let food be thy medicine right through to cutting edge research in 2022, Uh, We bring you all you need to know about bones and bone health, and we look forward to seeing you again on the next episode. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye now.